reason this got kicked off nearly 10 years ago now is because we saw a real concern and a real challenge that we had aggressive sustainability commitments we needed to reach as a society. Yet capital formation was not delivering that independently. Our specialty is in the technology validation, but also are there opportunities for us to participate directly and understand these technologies better because we understand this is where a lot of the technology is going. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about energy incubators and how large financial institutions like my guests can satisfy the needs for promising startups. First, a little personal news. Around the time of this interview, I decided to get out of a startup venture I'd been developing on the side. It had been five years. We got close a few times, but never could get the money to come together. The biggest problem was personnel. Our CTO was a genius, but a total flake. During one of our final pushes for a government grant, he went on vacation and was unavailable as we were scrambling to fill out the paperwork. The money was another problem. We played footsie with a Japanese company for about 18 months, which came to nothing. We looked for Department of Energy grants, but let's face it, these grants are really available to an insider's club. You can't find your topic from a search. The ones we did learn about were from a professor at Texas A&M. You're also talking to a guy who hosts a podcast who actually had a guest on who ran the department we were trying to find an award for. His response when I reached out for help? Search online. Then we watched as other companies won awards for that sector quarter after quarter. This brings us to our guest today. He represents one of the largest financial institutions in the country, and they, partnering with the National Lab, have created an incubator of incubators, as he puts it. Banks themselves are hesitant to invest in startups, especially the ones with no financials. The way around it was to invest in these firms through the bank's foundation, or nonprofit arm. The bank then funds research at the National labs, which hopefully make the technology viable and ready for investment. It's the combination of a large institutional bank and the expertise of a national lab that make this incubator a refreshing new option for promising young startups. My guest today is Ramsey Huntley, sustainable finance strategist for Wells Fargo and the bank's lead representative of the IN2 management team. IN2 stands for Innovation Incubator. They've been around since 2014 and have shepherded through a combined 50 companies, both past and present. IN2 is working with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, or NREL. They've also taken on the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center to help with agricultural tech companies. I was interested to talk to Ramsey in order to focus on Wells Fargo's role in this. You typically don't see banks participating on the incubator level. Startups are risky, and banking investment is all about risk. But they've built in some tools to help address that risk and give an institution like Wells Fargo a role in the early stages of development. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ramsey Huntley. Ramsey Huntley, sustainable finance strategist for Wells Fargo and leader of the IN2 management team on the Wells Fargo side. Ramsey, I've seen a lot of incubators. So what makes this IN2 incubator different? 
Thanks, Jay. Great to be with you today. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the Wells Fargo Innovation Incubator, or as you just referred to it, IN2. I think there's a couple things that make IN2 quite unique in the overall incubator space. I'd say for one thing, we have a national footprint. As you're aware, certainly a lot of incubators have much more of a regional focus. So I think our view nationally, and frankly, even internationally, we've got a couple of participants from Canada as well, is really unique. But I think truly the secret sauce of what we're doing here is that we're offering the startups that we work with access to capability that is highly unusual. And by that, I mean, we're offering them the ability to work with world-renowned laboratories to prove out and validate their technology and find a way to use that support to actually go into the market and scale up. And while that's, I think, what a lot of incubators attempt to do, our approach is just quite different in that we have access to tools and relationships that I think are very unusual in the overall incubator space. And then the last thing I'll say to that too, just what sets us apart is I think of this program as not just an incubator for startups, but it's also almost like an incubator of incubators. And by that, I mean, part of our mandate that we receive from the Wells Fargo Foundation is to support the overall clean tech, or if you want to call it climate tech ecosystem. And so this is not just about supporting the companies that come through the incubator, but supporting other incubators as well. In fact, these days we have more than 60 incubators, accelerators, and university partners around the country that have startups that are benefiting from the activity that we have going on. Yeah. And you're working with NREL, and I've talked to some program directors with Department of Energy. So what makes an incubator like yours different from a federal grant? Because the folks who get the federal grants will work with some of the national labs, right? You're right. NREL, or the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, is the host partner for this. So the program is co-administered between the Wells Fargo Foundation and the folks at NREL. What makes this different is, I think, the way the program is structured. So this is not a grant that is built around a particular ask from the federal government, you know, where you get DOE or the U.S. Department of Agriculture saying, we have this problem we'd like to solve. We're going to put a grant request out there. We'd like for a researcher or a university or a company to come around that. Rather, we're helping use the resources of the laboratories to solve the problems that the companies themselves are identifying. So it's almost like the other way around, right? And we do that because we recognize that those resources the laboratories have are incredibly powerful. We as taxpayers for decades now have supported these laboratories and grown the capability that they have, both in the brain power there, if you will, right? You're talking some of the top researchers in the world working on some of the world's most challenging issues. And then also the actual infrastructure that the labs represent. Those are two things that are, for all intents and purposes, I would say pretty much impossible for any given startup to access. And so we've devised a system that utilizes those capabilities in support of early stage companies that have have a aligned problem they're attempting to solve, whether that's in the clean tech space or in the case of our partners at the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center, a ag tech or sustainable agriculture type challenge they're looking to resolve. Sure. And can you clarify something? You're saying the Wells Fargo Foundation as opposed to Wells Fargo. So what is the difference there? Yeah, it's a great question to ask and an important clarification. So the Wells Fargo Foundation is independent of Wells Fargo. As you can imagine, it is a philanthropic arm of the enterprise. One of the foundation's ambition is to support the overall sustainability objectives that we at Wells Fargo have and that the foundation itself has. And one of those objectives is clean technology and innovation, right? This is a philanthropic endeavor. And by extension, that means that the companies don't give up equity to participate in this incubator like they would in in lots of other ones, right? And so the grant that comes from the Wells Fargo Foundation does is to actually support the National Laboratory. The Wells Fargo Foundation, through its philanthropic support here, is actually enabling the National Renewable Energy Laboratory to deliver this programming. And when I say delivering the programming, what's actually taking place is the startups are getting support, not directly in a financial sense, where they're being exchanged for, say, equity, right? But rather from that brain power and 
and infrastructure at the National Laboratory or at the Danforth Plant Science Center that I was mentioning earlier. And so that's the way the program is structured. And when I mentioned earlier that we're supporting over 60 incubators, accelerators, and universities, it's an extension of the same program that way. Many of those organizations are themselves nonprofits. It's critical when you're that small nonprofit, say regionally based somewhere in the United States, to tap into a larger network that's available. And that's where the philanthropic aspect of this comes in from the foundation, which is to really try and accelerate the overall clean tech ecosystem. And I think we've seen real success there, right? I mean, if you look at what's taken place in the larger climate tech or energy tech space over the last decade or so, there's been incredible momentum that's been enabled by the sorts of support that we and others in this ecosystem have been able to provide and ultimately accelerate. Ramsey, you kind of got me coming in at a weird time where I'm kind of dusting myself off. I was trying to help out with a clean tech startup and it just couldn't come together. One of the issues other promising startups have is the investors, right? They always want to see a prototype or financials and all you might have is an idea on paper. Is an incubator like this a possible avenue for that kind of financing, that prototype financing? Yeah, it absolutely is. And let me unpack that a little bit. There's a question in the mind of any given investor around the viability of the technology, right? Especially when we think about the proverbial hard tech, right? And that's really what we're about here. Do we have companies in the portfolio that are more on the software side? Of course. But a lot of what we're doing is, quote unquote, hard tech, because that's what's required if you think about an energy transition, right? We actually need different technologies that can replace the existing ones that we have today. A lot of that doesn't match up particularly well with the venture ecosystem. We need significant capital infusion into these companies to be able to deliver that technology in the first place to even get it to the prototype stage in many cases, right? What we're doing, and I think what's unique here, is the validation aspect. And let me take you one step back too. So this program that we run, the Wells Fargo Innovation Incubator, you as a startup, the proverbial new business coming out of the garage, and you wanted to apply, you can't just directly apply to the program. It's invitation only. And that's where those 60 plus partners that I mentioned earlier come in. They refer promising technology to us in the verticals that we're focused on. So that's building tech, and associated, say, grid edge type technologies, the ag tech reference that I pointed to earlier, and also what we think of as housing tech or construction tech, right? Those are our three verticals. We get referrals from our channel partners to send us promising companies that they're seeing in their own networks. I think of that as like one step in that validation process to get them closer to financial viability in the first place. And that is that the partners that we have have identified them as promising enough that they would refer them on and think that that company could actually benefit from what we're offering. And then where I think we provide real value to investors is the validation of technology. If you're a venture capitalist, you're really interested in the viability of a technology and what it could do in the marketplace, right? But it's really difficult to do that. You have to have substantial resources to do that in practice. And that's where I think the differentiation comes in here, which is what the laboratories are providing, is to actually validate that technology with the tools and the resources to say, yes, this has legs and we can see that make progress in the marketplace. And then the rest of the equation, if you will, is how do you get that to scale? How do you move it to commercial viability and actually put it in the arms, not just of investors, but ultimately create a vendor relationship for that startup such that they can sell their services, right? Yeah. I think there's a lot of steps along this process that get those companies to a place to where they can really pitch investors. And frankly, we've seen real success there. At our last tally earlier this year, the companies in the program have gone on to raise over $1.1 billion in follow-on funding since the time they joined the IN2 program. Sure. So instead of showing financials, instead of showing maybe equity, or money in the bank, you have these partners who can, as you put it, validate the technology, right? Where otherwise you wouldn't have that. As far as the risk standpoint, does that make a difference why Wells Fargo is doing this through the foundation as opposed to the bank? 
Sure. That's a great way to interpret it, right? I mean, this is a risky endeavor. And I think from the risk profile here, there's a lot of work that is taking place at the Wells Fargo Foundation and frankly beyond to de-risk these technologies. And we're seeing that, right? I mean, if you look at uh, organization we talk to a lot, the Breakthrough Energy Organization that Bill Gates found, they have a very similar structure in thinking about a lot of the same challenges that we are. But the reality is that is beyond the capital pools that have historically provided capital here, right? I mean, the reason this got kicked off nearly 10 years ago now is because we saw a real concern and a real challenge that we had aggressive sustainability commitments we needed to reach as a society, particularly around climate, yet capital formation was not delivering that independently. And we identified that as a validation challenge, right? The technologies could not get to scale because they could not be validated, thus they could not attract the capital they needed to move to scale in the first place, right? And so we were trying to insert ourselves in a very, I would say, tactical manner to address one of the challenges. I mean, we can't solve for everything, right? We don't come in and sign up the company with a chief marketing officer, for instance. That's not where our specialty lies. Our specialty is in the technology validation and helping them move up the curve on that particular problem solving. Okay. Well, tell us about some of the startups you've supported. Yeah, there's a long list. You know, these days it's over 50 companies that have either come through the program or are participating in the program right now. There's some real success stories in there. A couple I'd point out. There's a company up in Oregon called ESS. It's an iron flow battery storage company. And within the last month, I guess it was, they announced a storage deal with SB Energy, the energy arm of the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank. And so they signed up a deal for two gigawatt hours of storage associated with utility scale renewable projects. And then ESS actually just went public earlier this week. So really excited to see what they've done and the way they've accelerated out of the program as they've gone forward, right? Another one that's really interesting, we try to find promising companies everywhere. This is not a program that is just about the latest and greatest out of Silicon Valley. We identified a company out of Minnesota called 75F. The idea is built around targeted comfort solutions within a commercial or office type setting. Working with partners at NREL, they really fine-tuned their capability to address that on a building level, but really even more individually than that. How do you have sensor capability such that you could tweak building systems at a very granular level. That company has gotten significant attention. One of the investors that I find really interesting there is Steve Case and his Rise of the Rest Fund. They're looking for companies that are coming out of quote unquote middle America. And their most recent investment came from Siemens. Really interesting to me that someone like Siemens is looking at this technology and thinking about the implications for building portfolios. Really fascinating technologies, runs the gamut, but all of them having the connection point that they had technology that could be improved upon and accelerated in partnership with this program. Yeah. So, Ramsey, why was it important to have NREL in this incubator? There are a lot of folks who can evaluate technologies and mentor companies. And I'm sure that Wells Fargo itself probably has a lot of people who can evaluate technologies, right? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And we thought a lot about this, both when we engage in a partnership with NREL, as well as our partners at the Danforth Plant Science Center when we went into the sustainable ag space. And I think there's a couple of critical factors here. Is the partner a partner that is in the space of commercialization? Is this a partner that has a track record of working with scalable commercial technologies? The national labs are an absolutely critical part of the research infrastructure of this country. And frankly, I would argue what has resulted from the work happening in the labs is critical to some of the economic successes that we saw over the last 100 years even. But a lot of those labs are doing fundamental deep research rather than, if you will, taking something that's right on the cusp of commercialization and pushing it into the market. And so that's where I think NREL is quite unique, right? Their mandate 
from the day they began really was to target into renewable energy and to accelerate the scale pathway there. So they have a sense of what this actually takes given the sorts of relationships they already have in place. And so that for us was really critical, having that ability to scale technology. Then I think the other is the broad nature of what a national laboratory can offer, right? Even in the biggest organizations, whether it's Wells Fargo, whether it's a major university, they still have silos that they work in. And so we wanted to have a broad focus on this. We saw the National Labs as being really unique that way. And I think we saw the same when we went to Danforth as well, right? We said, if you're going to work on some of the challenges around agriculture and improving ag tech, who is an innovative partner that could be in a place to have the capabilities and the right, as they call them, principal investigators, so you know the top researchers, if you will, that have the skill sets to do this work. And I think the success that we've seen ultimately flows from that dynamic approach they take and also the broad-based approach they take. Yeah. And look, Ramsey, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, the Wells Fargo side of this incubator, is because I don't know if we've seen a major financial institution participate in clean tech in this way with an incubator. So what led to this on Wells Fargo's part? And I guess why have we not seen this kind of model set up with Chase and you know all those other guys? Yeah. And hey, if they're listening right now, I would encourage them to give me a call. I would love to talk about how we could do that because frankly, I think what we've done is frankly pretty spectacular, but there's still so much work to be done here. So we have a model and it is a proven and successful model, but frankly, I would love to see others join us because the scale of the issue here is, is quite large. I think in our case though, we looked around the market and thought about what are we doing within the core of the bank? What are we financing? We're one of the largest financiers of renewable energy in the country. We have deep expertise in all aspects of energy, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's upstream services, support for utility customers, right? We saw that our clients ultimately were going to be the quote-unquote recipients of this sort of technology. And then I think the other thing that was interesting to us here too, particularly if we go back to where we started this now 2014, going on a decade, we were challenged to also identify how we could solve for some of these sustainability issues in our own facilities, right? So if we think about the activity that we're involved in, it is not just how we support our clients directly, but we as a major Fortune 50 company have a particular operational challenges we were looking to address as well. And so we saw this as an opportunity to be a customer, if you will, right? How can we step in and help scale the technologies ourselves and bring those technologies in-house at Wells Fargo into our own real estate footprint and test those out as well. So for us, it was both a, this is interesting from the perspective of how do we engage our clients and our customers on this, but also are there opportunities for us to participate directly and understand these technologies better because we understand this is where a lot of the technology is going. There's multiple benefits to doing something like this, and there's also multiple opportunities to take it to market and scale it up. You bet. Any reason why you think it hadn't happened sooner? Yeah, there's probably lots of reasons. I would go back to what I said earlier about this began out of a market deficiency that we identified, right? That gap that came out of what we've colloquially referred to, I think, in the industry as clean tech 1.0. You know, what happened with the recession in 2009, 2010, with a lot of venture capital in particular pulling back at that time. It took some time to organize around, well, what would be a solution to bring that venture capital back in here? And I think now there's been such incredible focus particularly over the last year, year and a half since the pandemic, on a lot of these issues that we're seeing the capital system really, really unlock here. And what I mean by that is a variety of asset classes coming around this. This is not simply just a venture question these days. It still is. And venture is growing rapidly in the space, but you're also seeing lots of other asset classes come around it. You're seeing institutional investors looking at where there's opportunities for them to play here. So to your point, 
it's taken some time to get here, but we're seeing incredible, I think, entrepreneurs come into the space. We're seeing incredible capital flows in the space. We're seeing incredible commitments coming from companies like Wells Fargo and other large corporates that want to, in many cases, dramatically accelerate their activity here. So to me, there's a lot of forces that are bearing down on driving this forward right now. Yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit about ESG, if I can. Please. Okay. So it's just helping with Wells Fargo's ESG goals. Yeah, absolutely. So we set a target in March of this year to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 across our finance portfolio. To get to net zero, you have to have technologies that can dramatically accelerate that transition. To me, that was a natural outgrowth of the work that we've been doing here for years and looking at what are the technologies, how do we support them, how do we, Wells Fargo, show a real commitment to this space? I think when you stack what we've done with IN2 against the longtime commitment that we've had within the renewable energy sector, with working with clients in the real estate sector, those are all strong indicators of the work taking place here. And I think becomes critical to how we and other companies achieve our net zero ambitions. I see this as a building block, if you will, towards achieving those ESG ambitions. How important is ESG to the company? This feels like some concept that is very new. Like, I don't remember hearing about ESG a year ago, (laughs) right? Yeah, so interesting you frame it that way. It's not new. The work we've been doing has been going on for years, in many cases, decades. But I think the attention has gotten, certainly from the broader public, is new. And I think some of that bubbled up from the pandemic itself, right? People asking questions about what corporate America or companies globally are doing. But I think the real difference here has been the investor aspect of this. There have been ESG investors for a long time now. I think what's taken off of late is the overall risk identification, opportunity identification associated with those environmental, social, and governance metrics that mainstream investors, frankly, are taking up in a big way. I mean, if you look at BlackRock, they've basically said this is the direction that BlackRock is headed. And BlackRock expects that the companies that it's invested in is going to head that way. So you're seeing, I think, a very dramatic shift in the kinds of questions that are being asked of publicly traded companies like mine in this space. Frankly, I think we're in a very good position to be able to respond to that because we've had so much activity in this space for so long and we're only accelerating that. It's helping us to think about risk within publicly traded companies in a very different way these days. Are there risks that perhaps we just weren't looking at previously? And how do we address large, meaningful questions across society like diversity, equity, inclusion, or climate change? And what are the implications of that if a company does not address that? This is a trend that's, I think, been brewing for a while, but is kicked into overdrive, so to speak, in the last number of months and years here. Is this political? Political in what sense? Well, I don't know. I mean, it just <laughs> I'm right of center. I don't believe there's injustice. I just believe there's justice. So I don't know. It feels political. I, I don't know the political is the word I would use. I see it as a response to what customers are asking for. And I think from a climate perspective, I see it as we're understanding what the risks are that are out there and pivoting to address those. There's real questions around how we actually do that across society. I mean, I think that is a political question, but it's frankly a commercial question too. If we're not considering risk and by extension opportunities, I think that's a miss probably. And you're seeing some leading companies that are really leaning into that. And I think finding very sizable opportunities these days as they look to see where the next 10, 20, 30 years takes us, right? Yeah. And Ramsey, look, the big message I try to make on this podcast is that it's not all about wind and solar. It's about removing the negative aspects of all the families of energy and seeing where it leaves you. So intermittency with renewables, carbon with fossil, maybe expense with nuclear. Is that a message that maybe resonates with you guys? Not only carbon free, not only renewables, just making the most of what we've got. 
Of course, that's just a fundamental resonance, I would say. If I go back to some of our core competency that we have at IN2 and think about where we started, a lot of that work was truly in energy efficiency. It's about the least sexy topic you could think of. It's just not something that people want to spend time on. It's <laughs> been lacking investment, right? You just haven't seen capital flows here yet. Energy efficiency is the fundamental building block to make the fuel sources work better, right? I mean, the least expensive kilowatt hour or gallon of fuel is the one you don't use in the first place. I see efficiency as kind of the underpinning for the rest of this. And then, yeah, to your point, Jay, thinking about what are the implications of the fuel choices that we're making, both today and for the future. A fuel choice that may seem inexpensive in this quarter or in this year, the implications of using that fuel may be very different as we look down the road. I think it's comparing these choices head to head, and we see that time and time again with both the risk and the opportunities here. All right, Ramsey, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts, not the company's, <laughs> your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Critical to the emission reductions that we've seen over particularly the last decade with the rise of hydraulic fracking technology. I think the question in my mind has been presented as the bridge fuel to a net zero future. Is it still the bridge? I think that's a very real question to ask ourselves. Crude oil. Immediately comes to mind is the internal combustion engine, and I compare sales growth of electric vehicles to what's happening with internal combustion engines and think those trend lines are very interesting as we think about the future state of oil demand. Nuclear. Carbon-free, important baseload contribution, and I think a critical resource as we look to the future because it's a often overlooked resource of carbon-free energy, yet it's the largest one that we have, at least here domestically in the United States. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. Highly inefficient comes to mind, especially with carbon capture. I think there's probably better fuel choices that we could make that are ultimately more efficient from a carbon capture perspective. Wind. I think it might surprise a lot of your listeners that I would say that wind is a very mature industry now. I think a lot of people still think of wind and solar as upstarts. They are not. They're very mature across the supply chain, across the companies that are participating here, and I think have a very bright future. Solar. I think what comes to mind for me when I think of solar is the graphic of the cost curve and the dramatic reductions associated with the cost curve of solar. Biofuels. Incredible tool within the tool belt as I think about support for agriculture here domestically in the United States. The question in my mind is, can we sequester ultimately more carbon than the biofuels ultimately emit? Hydroelectric. Like nuclear, a carbon-free baseload resource, which is incredibly beneficial to the grid overall, but also I think very unlikely that we'll see significant additions of hydro in the future. Geothermal. Huge potential. Energy storage. It's an enabling technology. Energy storage makes solar and wind and, frankly, natural gas, too, better at what they do for a living. Electric vehicles. Cost curve. Same as with solar. If you look at that cost curve, it's pretty incredible as you look at that plummeting from a cost perspective. But there's a lot of infrastructure questions that we have to work out to be able to fully benefit from what EVs might mean. Energy efficiency. First, always. And then finally, fusion power. Man, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we'll see. Very good. All right. Ramsey Huntley, Wells Fargo, IN2 Incubator. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. Great to be with you today. That was Ramsey Huntley, Sustainable Finance Strategist for Wells Fargo and part of the IN2 Incubator Management Team. I want to thank Ramsey for his time as well as Liz Crumpacker at Antenna Group for setting this up. We've worked together several times and she always brings excellent guests. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. 
Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 125. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how vehicle to grid is giving way to vehicle to building. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time. Thank you.